Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 29. We will finish the end of the chapter at the end of this audio. Our context is this. The first 11 verses of Revelation 2 were the messages to the church of Ephesus and Smyrna from Jesus via John and via John's messenger. So we're in the midst of the discussion of the seven churches in Revelation, and we're going to discuss two of those churches in this audio, Pergamum and Thyatira. So we start in verse 12. And to the angel in the church of Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Now Pergamum is the third of the seven churches in Asia Minor that John is writing to. Pergamum is noted or notable because it is a seat of Roman provincial government. It was. Pergamum was also well, it was. It used to be a kingdom, an entire kingdom up there on the northwestern, in the northwestern portion of the Anatolian province. And so Pergamum was a big deal for the Romans, and so as such, it was one, the church at Pergamum was one of the first churches to be exposed to Roman persecution. Now the church was stalwart against that, but it slipped concerning pagan philosophy, namely the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, whatever that was. They didn't do so good about that. There was a number of popular false cults there, cult of Zeus, cult of Dionysius, cult of Asclepius. Zeus and Dionysius, of course, are well known. Greek gods, Asclepius is a serpent god who was officially designated as savior, god of healing, if I remember correctly. And there was also Caesar worship there, because remember, the Roman Empire was big there. In fact, that was the most important religion in Pergamum. There were magnificent temples there to the Caesars and to Rome. So Pergamum was the church most likely to clash with the imperial cult. And again, the angel that's mentioned here in verse 12, I'm assuming that's the messenger going to the church of Pergamum. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword, who's that? Well, that's Jesus. He has the sharp two-edged sword. It's coming out of his mouth. It stands for the word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. Revelation 1.16, we can see that explained explicitly. He, that's Jesus, had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp, double-edged sword came from his mouth. So the word comes out of Jesus' mouth. That shows that Jesus' authority comes from preaching, not civil action. The Romans might have had physical swords, but Jesus had the word of God, the gospel. We go to verse 13, Revelation 2. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. And did not deny my faith even the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So Satan's living here in Pergamum. So what is Satan's throne? Well, there's been several speculations about that. Some people say it was a great throne-like altar to Zeus, which overlooked the the city from the citadel. I've seen pictures of this. Yeah, it does look like a big, that big overhang. That citadel of the city is very prominent. It sticks up and they had an altar to Zeus up there. So that's one Speculation is what Satan's throne was. Other people say it's Asclepius because he was designated Savior and his symbol was a serpent. You've seen these winding serpents on a caduceus, which was a symbol of healing. The serpent was also a typical symbol of the devil. So Asclepius would be ruling Pergamum under this option and thus has a throne there. Well, that's a nice speculation. Third speculation as to what Satan's throne is. If you approach Pergamum from the south, you look up, The city's on a hill, and that hill itself looked like a throne. Pergamum was built on that hill. So I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. In other words, the hill that the satanic city of Pergamum is located. Maybe. 
Fourth option, Pergamum was the official cult center of emperor worship in Asia, and so Pergamum was Satan's throne in the east as Rome was Satan's throne in the west. That, in my opinion, is the best explanation. The apostate Jews were constantly hailing Christians before the Romans. I've got nine places in Acts where they did that. And so this illustrates one of the second, one of the three themes of the book of Revelation. And as I said in my introduction, that it was two persecuting entities who came after the Christians, the Romans and the apostate Jews. So we're going to assume that Satan's throne is the Roman Empire because Pergamum was so well noted as being an administrative center for the Roman Empire. And so Rome, as Satan, is ruling there. Rome, which is motivated and activated by Satan, is living there. Now, Jesus says, You, the church at Pergamum, hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even the days of Antipas, my witness of persecution. Obviously, it was severe persecution because Antipas was killed. Now, no one knows who Antipas is, but he was a faithful martyr. It shows that the persecution that they underwent there at Pergamum was pretty bad. Chapter 2, Revelation, verses 14 and 15. Jesus continues, But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So these Nicolaitans are likened unto Balaam, the Old Testament story about which it is well known. So let's talk about that story. Remember Moab, the king of Moab was in the path on the east side of the Jordan River, east side of the Dead Sea, I should say. The Israelites wanted to come through. They asked permission. The king of Moab, Balak, said, no, 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 I'm too scared of you guys. So instead of letting them come through, he hires a prophet from up in the, around Syria somewhere, I forgot where, he invited Balaam to come down into Moab and ask him to please curse the Israelites, and he would pay him for it. Balak would pay Balaam. So Balak put a stu- Balaam said, okay, we're going to put a stumbling block. We're going to teach you, Balak, how to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. We're going to teach you to seduce them to idols and women, idols and immorality, and that's what they did. They started started worshiping the Moabite idols, and they started having sex with the Moabite women. It's a very nasty, sad story. Of course, the Israelites got upset by that and ended up killing Balaam. But at any rate, in verse 15, the church, Jesus says that the church at Thyatira had some who in the same way held the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So from that, we deduce that the Nicolaitans were seducing to idolatry and seducing the Thyatirans to immorality. So, the Thyatirians withstood the persecution of the Roman Empire, but they were being corrupted from within by the Balaamites. Idols and immorality, things sacrificed to idols and immorality. These are, ironically, the same two things the early church was plagued by during the time of the Jerusalem Council. If you remember in Acts 15, they sent a letter out to the Gentile churches and said, abstain from idols and don't do immorality, because that's the thing that the early church was trying to avoid, and that would cause the Jewish people to stumble. Idolatry and immorality, if you think about it, they go hand in hand oftentimes. Your typical idol is usually shacking up with somebody. Now, these Nicolaitans, nobody knows exactly who they were that were seducing the Thyatirians. Irenaeus says that they were the follower of an apostatized Nicholas, one of the seven first so-called deacons in Jerusalem, serving the Hellenized Jews, if you recall, in Acts 6. And Irenaeus 
the early church fathers, says that Nicholas started preaching that unrestrained indulgence and adultery was okay. John Gill's got another theory. He says that Nicholas had a beautiful wife, and somebody allegedly made eyes at her. And so Nicholas was charged with being jealous of this guy. So to clear himself of the charge, he offered his wife in marriage to any taker. And Nicholas was wrongly interpreted by the Nicolaitans as saying, hey, it's okay to have a community of wives, which according to the story he really didn't say. That's a great story. Who knows whether it's true or not. Lightfoot, the great theologian at the Westminster Assembly, 1646, said that in Hebrew, Nikolai means let us eat, and so the Nicolaitans were those who were encouraged to eat food offered to idols. And the fourth speculation is is that they were, quote-unquote, conquerors of the laity, because Nikau, there you got Nico, and Laodans, Laos means the people. So the conquerors of the laity were power grabbers who took control over churches. And, of course, it might be a combination of those two. Who knows? Bruce Gore speculates that they were some kind of proto-Gnostic heretics because they were everywhere back in the early church. Well, whoever they were, they were false teachers and they were bad business. And unfortunately, these Nicolaitans were allowed to teach in the church because verse 15 says, so you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Well, maybe they weren't allowed to teach, but they believed the Nicolaitans and they were still in the church. Bad business. Verse 16, therefore repent, Jesus says, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. You've heard about a come to Jesus meeting. Well, here's a Jesus coming to you meeting. And this shows that, hey, it's serious business to have serious doctrine because serious doctrine kills people. Jesus says, I will come and make war with you by the sword of my mouth, which means he's going to use his word, the word of the gospel to, to knock out these heretics. And of course, that's how you knock out all heretics, all conspiracy theories, all nutty doctrine. Go to the word of God and say, prove it to me. Show it to me in the Bible, you blankety-blank heretic. Now, David Chilton, the great theologian and commentator on the book of Revelation, says that whoever these Nicolaitans were, they were identical to the Balaamites of Pergamum, where they are specifically identified with the Nicolaitans, and also the Jezebel faction at Thyatira, which we're going to get to in a few verses, because they're all doing the same thing. Balaam actually means conqueror of the people, just like Nicolaitans means conqueror of the people, and so both those who had the era of Balaam and the Nicolaitans had the same era. Sedu seduction to idolatry and seduction to sexual immorality. Jezebel is going to, whoever she was, in fire tire, she's going to seduce to idolatry and seduce to immorality. So there's a common theme between the church at Ephesus, which knocked the Nicolaitans out, at the church at Thyatira, which did not, and the church at Thyatira, which will deal with the with, uh Similar type people, not named Nicolaitans, but who were doing the same things as the Nicolaitans, and the things that they were doing were seducing to immorality and idolatry. We go to verse 16. Jesus continues, Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly. Well, I've already read that. I am coming to you quickly, that's coming in judgment, not physically, which shows that the word coming does not always mean coming at the end of time when Jesus returns to the earth. He will do that, but all comings don't refer to that. I'm coming to you quickly. This shows that the judgment of Thyatira, which might come if they don't deal with the Nicolaitans, would be coming quickly, not at the end of time. And I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Make war. Jesus is serious about heresy, folks. The sword of my mouth. The sword. 
It's ironic that Balaam was confronted on his ass by a drawn sword held by an angel. And then Balaam was killed by Israelites with a sword. Those are physical swords, but Jesus is coming with his metaphorical sword, if you will, the word of his mouth to kill the Nicolaitans. Verse 17, chapter 2, Revelation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me just stop there. You've got to have an ear to understand what's being said here in this book. You've got to be willing to listen to it. Otherwise, it's just going to be one big confused mess. To him who overcomes, that's one of the big themes of the book of Revelation, overcoming the persecution of the church. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone which one no one knows but he who receives it. Now this, on the surface, is a little bit confusing, perhaps. Well, let's talk about manna first. You know the Old Testament story, the manna that came from heaven to feed the Israelites in the wilderness. Well, Jesus comes from heaven. He's the bread that comes from heaven, and he feeds his New Testament Israel. John six thirty one through 33. Jesus says this, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Bread out of heaven, like Jesus comes out of heaven to feed us. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. In other words, the Father gave you Jesus. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. That's Jesus. So when Jesus says, I will give you some manna, that means I'm going to give you myself. Now, why does he call manna hidden manna? Well, John Gill says there's a couple of options. One, he could be referring to the manna that was in the desert was actually hidden between two layers of dew, one under the manna and one over the manna. Well, maybe so. But the best option, in my opinion, is that this hidden manna is hidden from carnal and unregenerate men. Only spiritual people can understand the manna, the Jesus that lives in them, the bread of life that's given them life. So that's the hidden manna that the overcomers are going to get. Then the overcomers are also going to get a white stone. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, Chilton has got an option, which I don't really believe, but I'll give it to you. He said manna is said to be white and like a white stone in this verse. Now, we know in Numbers 11:7 the manna was also white, and it was also like a white stone, bedellium. Now, the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bedellium. Now, bedellium was also found in the Garden of Eden in Paradise, Genesis 2.12. The gold of that land is good. The bedellium and the onyx stone are there. So, Chilton is saying that, hey, Jesus mentions manna, and he's trying to tell them, I'm not only I'm going to give you manna, I'm going to give you a little bit of paradise, a little white stone that's found in paradise. And, and it's connected with the manna. Well, that's very clever. Clint Chilton's a very clever guy, but I think he's too clever sometimes. Here's some other more traditional options as to what this white stone could mean. First option, the Greeks used white stones to mark lucky days. And so Jesus is saying, hey, this is your lucky day. I'm giving you a white stone. Well, that's nice. I don't believe that. White stones were given to victors at Olympic Games. This is option number two. The name of the victor and the value of the prize that they had won is on the white stone. So Jesus is saying, hey, overcomers, you just won. You just won in your conflicts with Satan and Satan's minions and the persecutors of your churches. You've won, and here's your white stone to show that you've won. That, to me, is pretty plausible. Third option of the white, for the white stone, the Romans in judgment used to put black and white stones in an urn, and a black stone was chosen for if a, if you put a, if, you put a black stone in the urn, that means you were guilty. A white stone was, you were innocent. So Jesus is saying, 
Hey, overcomers, you're innocent. You're innocent of all sin. Here's a white stone. Here's a fourth option. Jews would give priests and Levites the stone of the sanctuary, which was a ritualized thing to show that the Levites were ritually qualified to enter into their work. Well, that's a nice one. I think it's the 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 white stone that you get as a victor in the Olympic Games because that fits with the context pretty good because John is talking about overcoming, overcoming, overcoming the Nicolaitans. You'll be victorious when you overcome. The next thing that Jesus is going to give the overcomer in Thyatira is a new name written on the stone. So we've got the white stone, then a new name. Well, I think this is a little easier. The new name speaks of the new character and identity of Christians. After all, does not Paul say that we're a new man in Christ or a new person in Christ? So now we've got a new name. We're new. We're not old anymore. The old man's dead, put away, buried. Now this name that you have written on the stone, no one knows but he who receives it. I don't think that's hard to interpret either. John Gill says that the reason no one knows that name on the white stone is because the natural man cannot know salvation. So I know I'm saved and you know you're saved, but the average person looking at us cannot understand that relationship we have with the Holy Spirit. They think we're nuts. They think we're mystical or we're stupid or who knows. You know, they got all kind of stupid explanations for the reality of what has happened. We have a new name and it's only known spiritually through the Holy Spirit. Another option about no one knows the stone, about what that knows means, is that known has the sense of own as a Hebrew idiom. Like, I know that dog means I own that dog. The point here is not that, according to this option, the point is not that the name is secret, but rather it is exclusive. No one else has the right to it. In other words, Jesus is exclusively ours, and we are exclusively Jesus's. Because nobody knows it. Nobody can own Christ except those who know him and who are therefore said to own him. I don't know Hebrew well enough to know if that's reasonable. It sounds reasonable. But whatever it is, the point is is that we only know Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Nobody else can know that. We move now to Revelation 2.18 and to the angel of the church in Thyatira. We finish now with Pergamon. We move into Thyatira. And by the way, these seven churches form a loop like a mail route in western Anatolia western turkey so we're moving along down the mail route here we're going from pergamum pergamum was in the farthest north and now we're starting to move south again south and east to the angel of the church of thyatira right the son of god who his eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this now thyatira is the fourth church of the seven it was dominated by trade guilds you didn't join one of those trade guilds by golly you didn't work kind of like a closed shop labor union in a closed shop state in America. The members of these trade guilds had to participate in pagan worship, and two of the important elements of that pagan worship in the trade guilds were one, sacrificing to idols, and two, illicit sex. That sounds familiar, does it not? Eating meat, eating food, sacrificed to idols, and immorality. The local god there at Thyatira was Terimnos, who was the son of Zeus, and in Thyatira, Terimnos' worship was mixed with the worship of Caesar, emperor worship. Now, Jesus calls himself the Son of God here. And that's, of course, is a typical Messianic title that's used all through the Gospels. This is the only place it's mentioned in Revelation. Someone has speculated that the reason Jesus mentions his title here, his Messianic title, Son of God, is because the conflict with paganism was so current and central and immediate in Thyatira. And so he's saying, hey, I'm God. I'm ahead of all these pagans. Jesus' eyes are said to be as a flame of fire, and his feet as burnished bronze. This is 
a direct description from Daniel 10, verse 6. His, Jesus' body was like beryl, his face like the brilliance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches. His eyes like flaming torches. Of course, your eye that flames means it can see with white hot intensity, and it can pierce, and it can penetrate, and it can understand. Such an eye is powerful. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze or burnished bronze. I don't know what that means except that it gives a sense of power, strength. Eyes of flame and fire and burnished bronze are mentioned in chapter 1. I don't have the quote with me, but I remember it. So, But just to show that Daniel and Revelation are hooked together, the descriptions of the Messiah are so close together. Eyes like flaming torches and feet of polished bronze in Daniel 10 and in Revelation 2, verse 18. We go now to verse 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20. I know your deeds, Jesus continues, and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. That's good. That's the good news. Verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservant astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now here you have a church that's got some good and some bad in it, just like the previous church at Pergamum. The previous church at Pergamum stood up to the Romans against the persecution, but then they had Nicolaitans. And here, this church has got all kinds of love and faith and servants and perseverance doing fine, except, whoops, there's somebody there, which Jesus calls Jezebel, calls herself a prophetess, and she's leading people into the same evil deeds that the Nicolaitans were doing. Were doing. In fact, that's why people speculate that she was just one she wasn't Nicolaitan herself. Now, Thyatira's problem was opposite of Ephesus's. The Ephesians tolerated nothing improper. They were doctrinally orthodox, fighting Bundys, but they were cold. They had lost their first love. But here, you got people who have love and faith and servants, but they got lousy doctrine because they're tolerating Jezebel. They're the liberals, the, the Soft in the head and soft in the heart type Christians who always say, well, let's just don't talk about brother doctrine, brother. That divides. Let's just go out to the soup kitchens and help the poor. Well, of course, those are two extremes, and we can learn from those extremes. We don't want either extreme. We want good doctrine and good practice. We need to do deeds. Good work. The Bible is full of exhortations that we're supposed to good deeds. And if you want to go out to a soup kitchen to help somebody that's poor, well, you do it. If you want to go out with Samaritan's purse and and do all the good stuff they do with the poor, do it. Or a local harvest, uh, excuse me, a local food bank in your hometown, do it. But don't think that you've got to give up your good doctrine in order to do that. Notice this Jezebel, and by the way, she probably wasn't really named Jezebel. John probably just gave her that name to, to associate her with that nasty woman in the Old Testament that you know about. Now you notice that she calls herself a prophetess. She does, but God doesn't. She was a false prophet. Well, that's why she called herself a prophet, because God didn't put the stamp of approval on her. Now, here is a verse that clearly says that it is wrong for Christians to tolerate certain things. Now, you know, in today's culture, tolerance has become a buzzword. No judgment. Let's tolerate. Let's tolerate every sin that mankind has ever dreamed of. Let's tolerate it. Well, here, this is what Jesus said about tolerating Jezebel. He's against you for that. Church at Thyatira, I'm mad at you. I'm angry at you because you're tolerating something that shouldn't be tolerated. Now, here are some potential scenarios or possible scenarios that might have been going on in Thyatira with too much toleration. First one, maybe 
they tolerated people worshiping Caesar or Terimnos, the Greek god. And they said, well, but they're really worshiping God under another name. The Caesar is not really God. That's just God under another name. But we allow them to worship Caesar because they're not really committing idolatry. Nonsense. Or maybe let's let the pagans into our church so we can witness to them. <laughs> Sounds so good, doesn't it? Or there's another option. Let's go along with the pagans so the persecution won't wipe us out. Got to bend a little bit. Got to have a flex defense. So we'll just deny Jesus a little bit, but we don't really mean it. We'll cross our fingers behind our back as we deny Jesus. Or let's just go out and say, well, all religions have something to teach each other. So let's just learn from the Jews and from the pagan Romans. Or maybe they said this. We Christians should abandon our arrogant absolutism and combine the best of our traditions with the best of the heathen traditions. Well, of course, these are all speculations. But you get the flavor of compromise, compromises everywhere. It's always been in the church. It is really in the church today. And in fact, it's so much in the church, it's almost enough to make me become a fighting fundy. I'm not quite there yet, but I'm fast moving. The more of this nonsense I see about Black Lives Matter, a Marxist organization which says that we are queer affirming, we are opposed to the nuclear family, we want to do away with all police in the cities, and we go around saying, what do we want? What do we want? Pigs in a blanket. Pigs in a blanket. What do we want? Dead cops. Dead cops. They're racist. They hate white people. They're involved in violence all across America. The violence has been going on for two or three months now. And yet, I know of a church in my hometown. pastor got up and said, we support Black Lives Matter. And then, of course, there's the coach of the Clemson Tiger football team, dedicated Christian, whose team actually won the national championship, I think, twice in the last several years and lost a couple times. I hope they lose every time from now on because the coach, Christian, got up and said, I support Black Lives Matter. That organization is Antichrist, and yet we got Christians supporting it. That's the kind of toleration that is a terrible sin. It's impermissible to tolerate the intolerable. Revelation 2, verse 21. Jesus continues, I gave her, I gave Jezebel time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Now, her immorality could have been spiritual fornication by seducing people away from whole-souled love of God, or it could actually be physical immorality. She might have been engaged in a little bit of hanky-panky. It doesn't matter either way. She needs to repent. Notice that Jesus gave her time. Jesus doesn't automatically destroy people who need to be destroyed eventually. But it gives people time to repent so they're without excuse. They can't say, well, I just didn't know. I didn't have enough time. Oh, yes, you did. But she doesn't want to repent. Revelation 2, verse 22. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Now, I remember being in the charismatic movement, which was infected with, in those early days, with Copeland-Haganism. And I was constantly taught that God would never make somebody sick for punishment. Oh, yeah? Really? Here, Jesus said that he is going to make Jezebel sick as punishment. Now, of course, Jezebel's not a Christian, so it doesn't directly apply to Christians. But if a Christian is going off the beaten path, off the straight and narrow, you don't think God can use sickness to bring you back? Dream on, hyperfaith, scream it and redeem it and name it and claim it and mark it and park it, profess confess it and possess it people dream on and it's interesting that she's a whore jezebel so now instead of getting in the bed with her customer she's going to go to bed sick (laughs) 
Those who commit adultery with her, it's not only her, but those who get seduced by her, they're going to be thrown into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Little Jesus, meek and mild. Oh, no, he would never judge anybody, now would he? He believes in tolerance and love. That great tribulation there, of course, is not the great tribulation of Matthew 24, which is the tribulation coming upon the church in the run-up before Jerusalem is destroyed in AD 70. We go to Revelation 2, verse 23. And I, Jesus, will kill her children, kill Jezebel's children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Wow, Jesus is judging people and passing out retribution. I thought he was little Jesus meek and mild, the little Christ child in the manger saying, God will go to the ultimate length to preserve the righteous. And he's preserving the church at Thyatira, Thyatira by killing Jezebel and her children, her heretical children. Little Jesus meek and mild will kill, that's K-I-L-L, -L, kill his enemies. And when he does that, all the churches will know that Jesus is the one who searches the minds and hearts. In other words, Jesus knows whether you are loving him or whether you are hating him and seducing others to hate him. And I will give to each one of you, that's the Christians at Thyatira, I will give to each one of you Christians there according to your deeds, which shows that Christians are rewarded by their deeds. Christians don't get saved by their deeds, but they do get judged or rewarded by their deeds. We go now to Revelation 2, 24 and 25. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, which you have, hold fast until I come. Now, it's obvious that Jezebel is teaching something called the deep things of Satan. It sounds like they are openly acknowledging that they're worshiping Satan. Now, that's serious business there. That's open Satan worship. Usually, heretics are a little bit more subtle than that. They don't tell you that they're worshiping Satan. They are, but they cloak it with all kinds of pious religiosity. But these people said, nah, we're teaching you the deep things of Satan. He says, I place no other burden on you, probably because they had to devote all their times to getting rid of these horrible heretics. And he says in 25, verse 25, nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. In other words, the true doctrine that you have, and also the faith and love and perseverance that you have. Hold on to it despite all of these, this opposition that you have. Now, notice he says, hold fast until I come. Is that the end of the world? Jesus coming at the end of the world? Well, how can the fire tyrants hold fast to their love and trust until Jesus comes at the end of the world? Well, obviously they can't. Obviously they didn't because they've long been gone. Thyatira, I don't even think it exists as a city today. I can't remember whether it's a village there or not, but it's the church is gone. It's Muslim territory. So what is that coming? He's talking about until I come to judge these people who are teaching the deep things of Satan, whenever that might be. It's a judgment coming. It's not a coming at the end of the world. And if these were Jewish false teachers, then he would be referring to his coming in 8070 to wipe out Jerusalem as the head of the synagogues of Satan, the persecutors of the church, the murderers of Jesus. When that goes down, all of the synagogues in Asia Minor are going to go down too as the Jews, the apostate Jews, lose their spiritual head. We go down to verses 26 and 27. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them both with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. 
The Christians at Thyatira were probably tempted to doubt they would ever survive. They had heretics within and persecution without. But Jesus nonetheless says, he who overcomes. He who keeps my deeds until the end. And again, that's overcoming their current crisis, not at the end of the world. That end cannot mean the end of the world because the Thyatirans aren't going to be around at the end of the world. He's talking about overcoming in their present current crisis. They're going to get some authority. Okay. Well, now let's look at this word end. He who keeps my deeds until the end, he's going to get authority over the nations. Keeps Jesus' deeds until the end. Well, here are some options to the end of his life. Albert Barnes and John Gill say that's what John means here. But there's a problem I have with that. If he keeps his deeds to the end of his life, that means he's going to be dead. How can a deceased person have authority over the nations? Well, Barnes says the answer to that is he will partake of the final triumph and glory of the Savior. So so the verse would read this, He who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds until the end of his life, I will give him authority over the nations when Jesus rules over the nations at the end of time. There's one problem with that. This quote about having authority over the nations and ruling them with a rod of iron is obviously talking about Jesus' rule now in the inter-advent period between the first and second advent, as I'll show you in just a minute. It cannot refer to the end of time. Well, it could refer to the end of time, but it most probably refers to the church before the end of time. So that end, the end of a life, is problematic. John Gill suggests another meaning for end, the end of the church. If you'll persevere in holding on to Jesus' deeds until the end of the church, then you'll get authority. Well, the end of the church has not happened yet for 2,000 plus years. So how's the people at Fire Tower going to last that long? John Gill says the end of time, which to me is the same as the end of the church. What fire tyrant is going to live that long? How about this? To the end of the persecutions of the of the uh, of Jezebel and the false teachers, then you'll get to rule right there in this life, folks. I humbly suggest to you that that's what the answer is: persecute to the end of the, excuse me, persevere until the end of the persecution, and then you will have authority over the nations. Now, first of all, notice that. We know that Jesus has authority over the nations, as I'll show you when I quote Psalms. But this says, to him I will give authority. Who's the him referred to? To the one who overcomes. That's talking about Christians. So this saw, this passage of scripture from Psalms not only applies to Jesus, but it applies to Jesus' followers. We Christians are going to have authority over the nations. We are going to rule them with a rod of iron. Well, let's read the quote in Psalm 2, verses 7, 8, and 9. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now the quote is not exact. There's no mention of authority in Psalm 2, and there's no mention of Thou art my son in Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, where we or 27, excuse me, 26, where we are now. But it's close enough that you can tell that authority is being given to the believers in the same way that authority was given to the Son. In Psalm 2, 7, 8, and 9, how was authority given to the Son? It's when God said, Thou art my Son. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my Son. Well, when did God say to Jesus, Thou art my Son? Lots of places in the New Testament, Matthew 3:17, the baptism in the Jordan River. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And authority is thus granted to the Son. Matthew 17:5. this is the Mount of Transfiguration. 
While he yet spoke, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear hear ye him. So there you have a quotation from Psalm 2. Jesus had authority granted to him by the Father. Hebrews 1.5, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee? And again I will be to him a Father, and he shall be to me a Son. That's talking about God giving authority to Jesus. Hebrews 5.5, 5, So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my Son, today have I begotten thee. That's the same quote from Psalms. Acts 13.33, God hath fulfilled the same covenant promise unto us, the fathers, Unto us their children, that's the fathers, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. So you see how many times the psalm is quoted. And here in Acts 13.3, this is talking about right then when Luke was writing, when Paul was preaching, first century. God fulfilled the promise when he raised Jesus up again, as it is written in the second psalm, Thou art my son. So this is obviously talking about first century events, the preaching of the gospel in the first century, it is not talking about anything at the end of time. It's talking about the first coming of Jesus, not the second coming. So, if it's very clear that in these verses, especially Acts 13.33 is referring to the first century, the first coming of Jesus, isn't it likely that John, when he quotes Revelation, isn't he also talking about the first century? I think so. So let's read it this way. He overcomes... Which Thyatira overcomes? He who keeps my deeds until the end of the persecution, all the way through, to him I will give authority over the nations, that's the Gentiles, and that means now in the church age. And he, along with his master, Jesus, shall rule them with a rod of iron. Rod of iron is like a scepter, an iron scepter. It doesn't mean that you go around beating people over the heads with a rod of iron. It sounds like that, but that's not what it means. It means you have a scepter, which is a symbol of rule. As the vessels of potter are broken to pieces, and that's a good, that's a authoritative rule when you can break pottery to pieces. Now again, that sounds like a strong rule, and sometimes people, a lot of millennial, millennialist, pre mill types, they will often say, "See there, Jesus is going to rule in the millennium, but he's not going to be sweet and kind. He's going to kind of rule like Moses had to over the Old Testament Israelites. He's going to beat people over the head with an iron rod." No, I don't think so. It just means that we have authority now over the nations, which means that we can conquer with the word of Jesus's, with the sword of Jesus's word. We have authority over that. We need to spread the gospel as fast as we can and as deep as we can. Let's talk about this rod of iron one more time. It's mentioned again in Revelation 12:5, and this is where the Psalm 2, 7, 8, and 9 are quoted in reference to Jesus, not his Christians. Here in Revelation 2, Verses 26 and 27, it's quoted in relationship to the church, to believers. But in Revelation 12:5, it's quoted in reference to Jesus, the Son. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's, that's that woman, that's Israel, is talking about rule all nations with a rod of iron. The man-child is Jesus, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up into God, as Jesus caught up to God when he ascended to his throne. Well, that's obviously referring to the first coming. The child caught up into God, that's the ascension. That happened 2,000 years ago. It's not going to happen in the future sometime. So this ruling of the nations with a rod of iron is already happening. Jesus is ruling now. Oh, you say, but the devil's in charge. No, Jesus is ruling now. The devil is fighting a rear guard action and Jesus is mopping up, but he's ruling now. 
He's going to fully reign when, of course, he puts all enemies under his feet and presents them to God. Now, let me give you a little anecdote from my wife, Linda. She went to a dispensationalist Bible college, Philadelphia College of the Bible. And while they were there, they would not sing joy to the world. You know why? Because the song, the hymn, has within it a line that says, He, Jesus, rules the world with truth and grace. And the good dispensationalist there said, No, the devil rules the world. We can't say that Jesus rules the world because that doesn't happen until the end of time. Once again, you see how futurism screws up the church, makes the church a nothing burger, makes the church a gap, whereas the Orthodox Protestant interpretation of Revelation shows Jesus and his Christian church, the head and the body, ruling the nations. That doesn't mean we set up political governments because remember, it's the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth. It's the word of God. But with that authority of the word of God, not political power, but spiritual power, we rule the nations and we can convert the nations. And we need to get it, keep at it and not get depressed over political parties that are full of abortionists and antichrist. We don't need to get depressed about that. We need to spread the gospel. We go down to verses 28 and 29, Revelation 2. And I will give him the morning star. The hymn is the overcomer at Thyatira. Jesus is going to give him a morning star. And, of course, the morning star it refers to Jesus. And so Jesus is going to give the overcomer Jesus. He's going to give himself as a gift. How do we know that the morning star refers to Jesus? Because Christ calls himself the morning star in Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. The morning star, and people disagree over what star this actually is. I take it to be Venus, but there's other possibilities because some stars burn very bright in the sky right before the sun comes up. The idea is the, the star is bright, and it is a precursor of the very, very bright sun is coming up over the horizon in just a little bit. And so the idea here is that Jesus, he's showing us light, and there's going to be greater light coming. There's going to be a dawning of a new day of the glory of the new covenant. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. And as the morning star, he's saying, hey, you got some light from me now, but there's something better coming. It only gets better. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How many times did John say that, or Jesus say that? You want to get blessed by the revelation, by the book of Revelation, you better let your ears hear what the Spirit is saying. Ladies and gentlemen, we have finished with Revelation chapter 2, the first four churches. And now we're going to take up church number 5 and church number 6. I say now, I mean in the next audio. That's Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, the churches of Sardis and Philadelphia. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>